This morning, you can go ahead and turn in your Bible to Judges chapter 13. That's where we're going to be. Judges chapter 13, covering all the way to Judges chapter 16. We've got four chapters to cover today. Four chapters that unpack the life story of the last of Israel's judges, or at least the last one that we get record of in this book. All along in our study of Judges, what we've been trying to say is that, is that Judges is here in the Bible to do two things for us. It's here to show us uh, a, a window into a very particular relationship at a very particular time in history, the relationship between God and Israel, that every individual story about every judge is just meant to show us how God relates to those that are, that, that are His and every story about every individual judge is meant to show us what Israel's relationship to God was like, how they treated him, how they responded to his word and his faithfulness in their lives. So that's one thing we've been saying about judges. It's, it's a window into a relationship between God and Israel. The other thing we've been saying is that the reason we need this window into this relationship is that it helps us to see what we can expect from God, what will be expected by, uh, uh, of us by God if we want to be in relationship with him. Because the patterns that are set here are patterns that hold true even now. The God whose character is displayed in this book is the God who still reigns and still offers relationship with anyone who will have him. So we need these stories so that we can understand how we can relate to God ourselves. Now, in some ways the story of Samson is very unique it's longer than the other st- stories of the other judges. It's got a lot more interesting scenes. Not that the others weren't interesting. This story's got more of them. It features a judge with a totally different level of power than any of the other judges that we've come across so far. It's a unique story in the book, that's for sure. But for all its uniqueness, it's doing the same work. And for that reason, I think the way that we present it this morning, as we work through it, it's going to sound very familiar if you've been here for the rest of the series. Maybe even redundant. And I think it's meant to. The author of Judges is trying to make the same points to us over and over and over. This morning, in this judge, coming at the end of a long string of Judges, I think we've got the clearest reflection that we've had so far of what Israel is like and of what we can expect from God. And to make that clear, I want to I want to unpack Samson's story one by one, step by step, pulling out the ways in which Samson, in which the author is trying to show us he's he's just like Israel has been. And in the end, the way in which Samson points us ahead to a deliverer that's even greater than him. Three steps this morning. Like Samson, first of all, Excuse me, like Israel, first of all, Samson was set apart by God to show God's glory. I want to begin by reading for you the very very first scene in the story. It's at the beginning of Judges chapter 13. I'm going to read the first few verses to set us up. I want to ask you now to stand in honor of God's word, if you will, while I read uh, beginning with Judges chapter 13, verse 1. This is where Samson's birth is announced. And where the child to come is set apart to do God's work. This is the word of the Lord. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah. 
the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to set the scene for you here for this, this last of Israel's judges. Chapter 13 begins with a really familiar statement. If you've been here for the, from the series, you know that pretty much every judge we've looked at so far has started, his story has started with this exact same statement. Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. No matter how many times he delivers them and sets them up for success, every single time they forget his goodness, start looking around for other options, and end up pursuing the, nation, the gods of the nations around them rather than resting content that their God the one who saved them from, his, from, from the hand of Egypt, could deliver them when they need him. Every time Israel forgets, and every time they do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. That much makes sense and is familiar. But I wonder if you noticed, as we read these first few verses, that there's a big gap in this setup. A gap in what we've come to call, what we've, what we've been calling, the judge's cycle. Most of the stories in Judges follow the same pattern. It starts with apostasy, where Israel turns away from from God and trusts other gods instead of him. And then God hands them over to someone, the the very ones that they pursued. God just gives them over to to that nation, in this case the Philistines. And they learn what they've actually asked for is not what they expected. Then, typically, we have Israel crying out to God for help. They realize what they've gotten themselves into And they turn to the one they rejected and ask him to deliver them because they had nowhere else to go. But this time, this time they don't. Did you notice that? After we're told about their captivity to the Philistines, we move straight into what God does for them with no break for their repentance, for their crying out to him. Because friends here, as as we've continued to spiral down, through judge to judge to judge, we've reached, we've reached a low point. And Israel's no longer bothered by their own oppression. There's no pain expressed here, no helplessness and no regret. Not even a show of repentance. Basically, they've made peace with their slavery. They're completely defeated. And they're on the verge of being completely absorbed. Completely losing their identity as God's people. In fact, you know, up until now with the judges, we've seen, we've seen the judge used by God to rally Israel. To rally whole armies of thousands. Think of Deborah and Barak going in to, to, to get rid of their oppressors. Then with Gideon, there were thousands of men that rise to Gideon to to follow him into battle. God trims them down to 300. He has to trim them down to a smaller army. Now, in this story, this judge, he's going to act alone. There's no rallying to him. In fact, there's one point later in the story where 
where the Philistines are coming for Samson. They want to take him, and, and the people of Israel want to hand him over to them. The people of Israel come to Samson asking him, hey, would you mind if we just go ahead and bind you and, and, and hand you over to the Philistines? Don't you know that they're rulers over us? Don't you get it, Samson? We serve the Philistines. They're completely defeated. And there, there is where God acts. What you need to know about God is that he is gracious, that he, he takes initiative, that he comes after those he loves even when they lack the decency to ask for help. That's the point that this story is making with the long chapter on Samson's birth. None of the other judges have had birth stories. God has always just appointed somebody who was already around, called them out and put them, in, put them to work as a judge. But here, it's like everything about this setup is trying to make the point that when Israel didn't even have the strength to cry out for help, God is coming for them. He's the one taking the initiative. His power and his power alone will explain what happens next. In fact, he comes to a family that, that can't have children. He picks out a woman who is barren, who is bearing the shame and the pain that that culture would have imposed upon her as one who couldn't bear children. He comes to her, to this family, to make it clear that what happens next is his doing. That you're about to see God do something to save his people. This family is a reflection of Israel itself with their condition as God comes to them. And into this place, God brings life by his power. The angel tells this family, you will conceive and bear a son. From here on, Samson's story reflects that of Israel. Like Israel, Samson was set apart to show God's glory. The setup here is meant to help us see Samson's life tracks with the basic life of Israel and their, and their relationship to God. I want to give you a couple examples of that. Three examples of how, it, how this chapter sets Samson up to reflect what God had, had done with Israel. Here's the first example. Like Israel, Samson was set apart. So when God, when God established this people that he wanted to have a relationship with, there was nothing about them that was remarkable. In fact, he came to an old man who had no children, and he promised him children, promised to make a nation of them. Where there was no life, he gave life. And he built this nation out of nothing so that it would be a unique place where people could see what it looks like to trust God, to see that God can deliver, and to walk in happiness and peace with him. That's what he does. He takes a people, Israel, and sets them apart. And here he's doing the same thing with Samson. Did you notice all those strange instructions in verses 4 and 5? This isn't some typical prenatal plan that the angel has given to this woman. He tells her not to, not to drink wine or strong drink, to eat nothing unclean, and then he tells her not to cut her baby's hair. Now, that, there's, there, there's a history here to this law. You, you saw the word Nazarite, perhaps, as I was reading through these, these verses. Earlier in, in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, there was, this, there was this set of rules that you could take on yourself willingly if you want to. Numbers chapter 6, a vow that you could make for a certain amount of time to show that you were completely set off and trusting in God to deliver for you. It, Nazarite just means consecrated, one who was set apart. And that vow involved not cutting your hair, it involved not touching dead bodies, and it involved not drinking wine. 
Why did it involve not cutting your hair and not touching dead bodies and not drinking wine? It involved those things because it involved those things. They're completely random. They have nothing to do with the vow itself. They are God's way of saying, do this kind of weird thing as a way of making it clear to everybody that you're with me, that you're set apart, trusting in, depending on, and and seeking after me. So he tells, so so Samson is is in an even more visible way than Israel at large. He's set apart to be different. Not because he needed long hair to have some sort of super magical power, but because he was supposed to make it clear that what happens through this man happens by God's power. He was set apart for God's glory. That's what these random things are about. Like Israel, Samson was set apart. Here's a second example. Like Israel... Samson had a special mission. He was marked off not for his own sake so he could live a great life and enjoy all the perks of being a Nazarite. He was, he was marked off and set apart so God could bless Israel through him. This is in verse 5. Did you notice? This child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This child's given a mission. His life is not his own. His life is on purpose. And that purpose is to set God's people free. Israel too was set off, not for their own sake, but for God's purposes. They were supposed to be a blessing to all the nations. They were supposed to show the nations that God could be trusted and obeyed. That because you can trust God, you don't have to abuse or use one another. You don't have to live selfishly, always looking out for your own interests. That that anyone can have this life if they want it. That's what Israel's mission was. And Samson, like Israel, has been given this mission. And, and finally, a third example, just like Israel, Samson is given the remarkable power and privileges that he is going to need for his mission. God had given Israel everything they needed to be this separate, set-apart people. He promised to always provide for them, and he always had. Now Samson gets exactly what he's going to need. He gets a power in his own person that no other judge has had. We start to see this at the end of chapter 13. Most of this chapter is a, is a wonderful back and forth between this husband and this wife and this angel trying to figure out what exactly is going on here and what they should expect and what should they do once the child is here. It's a wonderful story in its own right that we don't have time to get into. But at the end of it, at the end of this back and forth between the mother and the father and the angel of the Lord who announced this to them, we get this word from verse 24. The woman bore a son, just like the Lord said she would. They called his name Samson. And the young man grew. And the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan, between Zorah and Eshtaol. The Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. The stage is all set. We're supposed to be wondering now, What's going to happen next? Is this cycle finally going to be broken? Is this the one? So far, what we've been talking, what we've been saying is all about Israel and Samson, but I want, I want to make sure you notice that, that even this chapter is echoing something else the Bible says about all humans. And you may not be Samson, you may not belong to the people of Israel. 
But as a, as a human made in God's image, did you, do you understand that, that you are set apart? That God has given you a unique identity among the things that he made? That among all of creation, you are, are, are different. Simply because he decided that you would be and made it so. And with that unique identity, with that unique humanness made in his image, you've been given a special responsibility to take care of the world, to work and make good, beautiful things like he did, to reflect through your life and what you make something of his beauty as a creator, that you've been called to love one another like he's loved you and to depend on him so that he can show through you that he's dependable. That he's wonderful and beautiful. Samson's calling reflects Israel's. And Israel's calling just reflects all of our calling. As those who are made in God's image. Everything about who you are. Everything you have. Everything you enjoy. Every opportunity in your life. Whatever it looks like right now. That's given to you. By God. And it's supposed to be aimed at his glory. Like Israel, Samson was set apart by God. To show his glory. And the question we're left with at the end of chapter 13 is, is, is what happens next? He's stirring in him. He's an, God has announced something this time. He's never done that before. It feels like maybe we're on the verge of, a, of an end to this cycle. The chapter that we've just considered is all positive. It ends with hope and expectation. But from here on out, all of our hopes are disappointed. From chapter 14 on, all of our hopes for Samson are disappointed. The cycle isn't broken. In fact, we're spiraling down further than ever. From this point on, from this point in the story on, Samson's story reflects Israel's failure. Chapter 13, he reflects something of Israel's wonderful calling by God. Chapter 14 on, he reflects... Israel's waste of what God had given them. Like Israel, the second thing we want to see from his story is that Samson wasted God's friendship and just did whatever he wanted. Instead of a story of great strength, it's mostly a story of weakness. Let me show you. I want to give you a couple examples. Same examples we, we just looked at. I want to show you how he fails at every point, just like Israel did. Instead of standing out, Samson immediately blends in. His whole calling, all that Nazarite stuff, was about him being apart, being different from everyone else, showing that he's consecrated, set apart to God. But then the first thing we see him doing in chapter 14 is going down to blend straight in to the the very people who were oppressing Israel. Samson went down, verse 1 tells us, to Timnah. One might hope he's going down to take the fight to Israel's oppressors like the other judges have done. But at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now, get her from me as my wife. He doesn't go to Timnah to fight Israel's conquerors. He goes to join them. He sees a Philistine woman and he decides he can't live without her. His parents are mortified. His father and mother said to him, verse 3, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among, among all our people? Take your pick. Anyone in Israel? 
that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? What's the problem? It's not a racial thing. It's not a problem of interracial dating. As one commentator put it, it's a problem of, of interfaith dating. The problem is an interfaith relationship. That Samson is going after a worshiper of a false god. Assuming, in other words, that, that the one true God has nothing to do with this fundamental relationship in his life. The relationship of marriage is like a fundamental building block in how you're building your life. And, and he is roping God off from it. He's just going with what feels right. He's blending straight in. God is not a factor in his choices, in other words. And verse 4 says that God knows what he's doing. He's going to use this for good. He knows he's using it as a chance to get at the Philistines eventually as the story continues to unpack. But that doesn't change the fact that this is not okay. That Samson, so far from being this Nazarite who's set completely apart, is, is completely disregarding God's call on Israel to stay pure, to stay focused and holy, trusting only in him. He's moving the other way. The rest of the story... All of its action is built around his relationships with three different women, all of them Philistines. And that's not an accident. Remember, if you've been with us throughout the series, you'll know that the way that God has described Israel's relationships with their neighbors and their neighbors' gods is as prostitution. Israel as a prostitute selling intimacy for a fee to whatever gods might happen to be within reach. And here, so Samson's downfall being these these foreign women, in, in, at least in one case, actual prostitutes, mirrors, is intentionally supposed to mirror what's going on with Israel and their relationship with God. So, in, just like Israel, instead of standing apart, Samson's blending right in. Here's another example. Instead of pursuing God's agenda, the one God gave him, to deliver his people from the Philistines, Samson uses his power to do whatever he wants, just like Israel. Did you notice Samson's reasoning with his parents? Look at verse 3. Or, uh, yeah, verse 3 of chapter 14. Samson says to his father, after his father has said, just take one of your own relatives, Samson's comeback is simply, get her for me. Why? For she is right in my eyes. Why? It's just what he wanted. He wanted what he wanted. He was a guy who thought he should get whatever he wanted. God doesn't come into it at all. All that matters is his own desire. Samson's story is full of amazing feats of strength. It's like a biblical comic book from here on. No judge has been like this. Story immediately after what I've just read has a lion coming at Samson when he's on his way down to marry this woman from, from Timnah. A lion comes at him, grabs the lion, rips him in two with his bare hands all by himself. Who does that? None of these judges have done that. A little bit later on, he's going to be trapped in a city by some Philistines who want to take him out. He's gone in there for a night with this prostitute. They hear that he's there. They come and surround him at Gaza. And what does Samson do? While they're waiting in ambush, they've locked him in the city gates. He just pulls the gates up out of the ground. He throws the gates on his shoulders and he carries them up to the nearest hill. 
There's one time where the Philistines have got him hemmed in in this rock where he's been hiding out because he's angry about how things have gone down with his, with his former wife. He's hiding out, moping. The Philistines know that's their opportunity. They come after him, and he picks up the jawbone of a donkey, and he kills a thousand of them with the jawbone. The stories are meant to be that kind of attention-grabbing comic book, like out-of-this-world kind of power. But in each case, every time he's using this amazing strength, it's just either to get something that he just happened to want or to get himself out of some mess that his desires got him into in the first place. He's using his strength to rip a lion apart as he goes down to marry a woman he had no business marrying. He uses his strength to destroy all the crops of the Philistines because he's mad that they took her back, took her away from him when he had married this Philistine woman. He uses his strength to, again, as I mentioned, kill a thousand men with a jawbone of a donkey, but only because he had gotten into a tit-for-tat with the Philistines, a, a kind of personal vendetta against them in the wake of them taking away his wife. And... When he pulls up those gates and throws them on his shoulders, it's to escape from the city where he trapped himself by this prostitute. At every turn, here's how one commentator put it, he may be incredibly strong, but the exploits of Samson read like the actions of an uncontrollable juvenile delinquent. That's what we have in Samson. He was supposed to fight the Philistines. He does fight them here and there. He doesn't care about Israel's oppression at all. He's not driven by a desire to change their reality. He uses his power only to pay off his own personal debts, to accomplish his own narrow goals. One of the places that reflects this most clearly, the third example of how Samson reflects Israel, instead of having gratitude for all God had given him, for this amazing power that no judge had ever had. He just takes God's grace for granted. He just assumes God's power. His power was an immense privilege. It came straight from the Spirit of the Lord. It had nothing to do with Samson. But he acted like his strength belonged to him to use however he wanted. The best example here is in chapter 16. It's probably the most famous part of the Samson story. It's, the whole chapter is this back and forth between Samson and a woman he loved. Before, he, he was just impulsive and impetuous and driven by these fleeting desires for these women. But apparently, this last woman really gets to him. In chapter 16, flip over to the first few verses of that chapter. You'll see where he meets a woman named Delilah. In chapter 16, verse 4, we're told that after this, after the episode in Gaza where he has to escape from the, the ambush, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, a Philistine area, whose name was Delilah. The Philistine rulers get wind that he's come there. They come to Delilah and get her on their side. Verse 5, seduce him and see where his great strength lies, they tell her. By what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him, to humble him. And we'll, give you, we'll each give you. 1,100 pieces of silver. That's all Delilah needed to hear. She's on their side now. And she works her wiles on Samson. He is like putty in her hands. He can't resist. So Delilah says to him, Please, tell me where your great strength lies, verse 6, and how you might be bound that, no one, that one could subdue you. At first, Samson's playing with her. 
He gives her a couple of false answers. What you need to do, he tells her, is grab some bowstrings that haven't been used yet. Wrap me up with those and I'll be just like any other man. And of course, he's just toying with her. She does it. She screams, the Philistines are coming, Samson. And he snaps them like they're, like they're nothing. Same thing with some ropes. He tells her, no, what you really need to do is get some new ropes, unused ropes. Tie me with those and I'll be like any other man. So she ties him. She screams, the Philistines are coming. And once again, he snaps them like they're nothing. Just playing with her. Until she finally wears him down. Verse 15 of chapter 16. Look at that. She says to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times and you haven't told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. Poor little Samson is aggravated. And he told her all his heart. And he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, my strength will leave me, and I'll become weak and be like any other man. She just wears him down. He's weak. For all of his strength, he is weak. And this time she knows he's telling the truth. So she calls in the Philistines to be ready. She lulls him to sleep and then shaves his hair. And sure enough, wakes him up, tells him the Philistines are here. And his strength is gone. What I want you to notice about this is Samson's response to the situation. She wakes him up, verse 20. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from his sleep and he said, I'll go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. I think what the author is drawing our attention to is that Samson, like Israel, all his life, he just takes God's gifts for granted. He's forgotten that that strength is arbitrary as far as it rests on him. It's just a free decision God made to give it to him as long as God chose to give it to him. It isn't his strength, but he lives like it is. And even without his hair, he wakes up thinking, I'm going to be fine. He's taking it for granted. And he goes out to meet the Philistines, assuming he'd escape just like he always had. But not this time. Verse 21, the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. And brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. Samson's learned the truth the hard way. And friends, it's here that he reflects Israel most clearly. In his deepest need, at this point in his life cycle, he looks exactly like Israel. All the signs of his chosenness all the signs of his set-apartness, they're all gone. All that power, all the power and the privilege that he'd assumed and taken for granted, it's now missing. For his whole life, he had been blinded by his desire. Now he's been blinded in reality. And like his people, the people he was meant to liberate, he was now fully and helplessly in bondage to the people that he'd chosen to follow all along. Samson's life reflects Israel's, and it reflects ours, too. When we live as if God is no factor, 
as if the privileges and powers that we enjoy don't come to us straight from his hand and only from his hand. As if the guiding force for every life is meant to be not whatever we want, whatever seems best to us, but what God has called us and commissioned us to do. The final scene of Samson's story is gripping and tragic and powerful. And it sets us up to close this morning. It sets us up to see the final point we're supposed to take from this story and from this entire book. It's in this last scene that the story of self-indulgence becomes a story of self-sacrifice. That the story of weakness becomes a story of strength. That the story of defeat becomes a story of victory. Samson, who for so long has just toyed with people, right? He's just played with them. He's been, he's been the guy who makes riddles or who, who mocks Delilah when she's trying to get a straight answer out of him. This guy who's just treated all of life as a game has now become the, the plaything of his enemies. The Philistines throw a party to celebrate their God, they believe, has given Samson their thorn in their side. He's given him into their hands. They're happy about that. They, they want to celebrate Dagon, their God. And so they, they throw a big party. And they decide to take Samson off his duty at the grist mill where he was just spending his days walking, grinding, grinding. They want to bring him in for some entertainment. So look at the, pick up the story at the end of chapter 16. When their hearts were merry, verse 25, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. It's a heartbreaking scene if you think about it. He's, be, he's being dragged out of here, blind, broken, like an exotic zoo animal. They lead him out into this jeering crowd, already drunk on wine, out of their minds, carrying on. And there, his great sadness, his deep brokenness is what is makes them laugh, gives them joy. They put him between the pillars, I don't know, I guess where they could see him better. They see him as no threat. They assume what Samson assumed, that his power was his, that his power depended on something like hair, that they could actually, that they and their gods had the power to take it from him. That's what they assumed. They see him as no threat. But Samson sees his opportunity. And now he finally sees his need for God. Verse 26, Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. He's feigning weakness. He needs a place to slump over. Now the house was full of men and women, we're told. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. This is his moment. Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me. This man, given so much by God for all of his life, living his life as if the only thing that mattered is what he wanted, completely forgetting the God who gave him everything he had, now, in the end, ask God to remember him. Please strengthen me only this once, O oh God. Now he sees where his source, where his strength comes from. 
that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. He's leaning in with all of his weight and he says, let me die with the Philistines. And God hears him. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he'd killed during his life. At his weakest point, where his faith was born, God used Samson and his death to lighten the load of his people. But it isn't necessarily a happy ending, is it? The ending is positive compared to the rest of the story, but it's the bleakest ending of a judge story yet. They're still in captivity. There's, no, there's not even a stir of support for Samson. He's acting alone through the whole thing. Israel's not coming to his aid. They don't rally to him. Verse 5, in the, the section where we're talking about his call, the angel had said his calling is only to begin to deliver his people from the Philistines. And that's what this is, just a beginning. But here, at the end of a life that reflects Israel and all of Israel's failure, we can see in Samson's death another sort of reflection. In his death, he reflects a greater deliverer still to come. He reflects one whose deliverance would not be just the beginning, but the ending of all the suffering and pain of God's people. The one who would come to set his people free once and for all. Why is this story here? Why why is this book here? Two reasons. It shows us how God saves and it shows us who God saves. Samson's life bears a remarkable resemblance to Jesus. Maybe some of the details pushed a little too far. But isn't it remarkable that just like Jesus, his birth was announced to his parents who weren't expecting him by an angel? That, he, that Jesus, like Samson, was told of him by the angels that he'd be set apart to save his people? That Jesus, like Samson, had legendary power, power like no one else? Sure, in some ways, Jesus was different from him. He only did the will of his father. He didn't use his power as a source of personal vengeance or to, to, to fulfill whatever random desires he might have had in the moment. Jesus used his power to save, always to obey. But in the end, his life and his death resemble Samson's in some remarkable ways. So close, in fact, that I think it's safe to say God is showing us a pattern. Jesus, like Samson, was captured by foreigners who beat him and tortured him. He was humiliated. Jesus, too, was made sport. He was set up as the entertainment for the people who had taken him. Just like Samson, it was in Jesus' death at his weakest moment, when it looked like all hope was lost, when it looked like his life was useless. It was then, in that moment, just like with Samson, that God used Jesus to deal the greatest blow to the enemies of his people. Samson we're told, killed more with his death than he ever did with his life. Jesus 
through his cross, disarmed the rulers and the authorities, Colossians 2 tells us, and set his people free. He didn't begin to set them free. He truly set them free. So what is this story here for? It's meant to point us ahead, to show us how God saves. God is in the business of reversing lost causes. He lives and acts to confound our expectations. It's in these weakest of moments where things look bleak and irredeemable that God inserts himself in Jesus to deliver his people once and for all. He acts like this so that we will know it's him that we trust and no one else. We need to know how God saves because it's directly connected to who he saves. He doesn't save those who have the strength of Samson. Those who can pick up their burdens, whatever's holding them back, throw it on their shoulders and walk up the side of the mountain with it. He doesn't look for us to be like Samson in his strength. He saves those who look like Samson in his weakness. He hears the prayers of those who recognize by their own sin, by their neglect of him, by their selfishness and entitlement, by their their addictions to things like sex. That's Samson's story. Those who had willingly imprisoned themselves in their own desires. Those who have been blinded. Those are the ones God saves. And he'll save you too. He'll save you too if, like Samson, you call out to him. Nothing else has to happen. God will never turn away anyone who looks to him. And he loves to triumph in weakness. Father, I pray that you would give us the strength to acknowledge our weakness and to recognize that we've got one hope and one hope only. Our hope is not in ourselves, not in our strength, not in our ability to turn things around, but in Jesus and in him alone. Help us to trust him now in Jesus' name. We're going to sing some songs now that respond to this message. We're going to sing songs that invite sinners to not do anything but come.